Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. With these Hollywood types, they just aren't used to journalists who won't back off. The the kinds of journalists they normally deal with are really scared of their whole industry and are really scared of losing out on the next interviews. Today, I'm chatting to Krishnan Gurumurthy, one of the main anchors of Channel 4 News in the UK. Krishnan has covered major news events from around the world, including 9-11, the Omar bombing, the Syrian conflict and the war in Yemen. Krishnan, how on earth are you? I'm very well, thanks, Sean. I'm slightly frazzled as I've driven a thousand miles in the last two days across America in and out of a hurricane, but um, I'm good. I'm good. Well, you don't look frazzled. You look very (laughs) together and collected as always, Um, but it's lovely to see you in person. It's been quite a while, Krishnan, a couple of years at least, I think. Yeah, a long time since Unreported World. Listen, start and tell me, Krishnan, how did you enter journalism? I know your story is quite brilliant, so I'm dying for our audience to know about your journey. I started out as a studio presenter when I was 18 years old, and I got my first job the week before my A-level results. And it happened because I did a lot of debating when I was at school, and I got invited onto a program called Open to Question, which the BBC used to run on BBC Two, and it used to invite groups of teenagers to question public figures, politicians, celebrities. And it was sort of a bear pit atmosphere in which the young audience were encouraged to be really blunt, quite aggressive, and ask all the questions that professional polished interviewers may not ask. And so I was one of those kids who kept asking awkward questions from about the age of 15, and they kept inviting me back. And so I did it over sort of two or three years. And when I was leaving school, I did science A-levels, and I was all set to be a medic like my dad. And I was going to medical school, but I took a year off. And I wrote to the BBC, to that department, and said... I'm taking a year off. Could I come and work for you as a researcher during my year off? And they said, no, but you could come and do some work experience. And so I went up and did two weeks work experience at the features department at BBC Scotland. And at the end of the two weeks in which I was sort of generally quite noisy and kept putting in ideas and piping up during the meetings in the way that most work experience kids don't, I suppose, they said, well, actually, we're looking for a new presenter for Open to Question for that program, and we'd like to screen test you. And so they put me in the studio, and they got me to interview my predecessor, John Nicholson, who is now a member of parliament for the SNP. Brilliant. He's been a BBC journalist for a long time. Um, and they offered me a job on the spot to do two series of that show. And it was the week before my A-levels, and I, everything changed from that moment. So I started out doing that, which was basically interviewing and chairing a discussion, and then went from thing to thing. I I then went to youth TV to work on a program called Reportage, and that's where I started learning about reporting and and what was involved, because I literally knew nothing. You know, I was a kid straight out of school. Um, And so everything that I've learned since has been on the job. I went to university, and I worked part-time all the way through university on the Ethnic Minority Programs Unit. And then in my third year at university, I joined Newsround, the kids' news program. And that's really where I learned about journalism, because you would spend a week in the studio and then a week on the road, typically, and you would do all the big stories. You would go to all the big stories. You know, I covered 
the US election in 92 and the breakup of Yugoslavia and all sorts of amazing things. And just normal British stories and kids' stories about whales and pandas and space and all sorts of things. And you learned how to tell stories. So that's really how I got into journalism. I mean, that is such a brilliant story in itself because it's it's so unusual for somebody to start off like that. And for anybody who might not know you, you know, who's not, um, you know, not from the UK, you are very, very well known for your rigorous and tough questions. So it sounds like you were just always naturally like that. You were always, you know, um, a thorn in people's side, Chris. I mean, that in the most yeah. loving way, of course. Yeah, I, I, I did always start out from the position of thinking about political interviewing and open to question was essentially a political show and a debate show and it was an aggressive show and so that that was always my mindset and you know when I decided to stick with TV if I possibly could my ambition back in those days in 1988 was to end up doing very serious stuff my idols were Robin Day David Dimbleby. I mean, not idols, but those were the people who I looked at and thought, that's what I want to do. I wanted to do long political interviews. I wanted to do Brian Walden type interviews and David Dimbleby type interviews. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've always, I think, I think I've just set out on that road and in a very meandering kind of way through children's TV and entertainment and all sorts of strange things along the way, I sort of ended up there. And you joined Channel 4 News in 1998, is that right? Yes, that's right. I'd done 10 years at the BBC and I had just done the launch of the BBC News Channel, BBC News 24 as it was then. And I had, you know, done, done that sort of daytime. I did a daytime sequence. It was, it was on at lunchtime, I think, for three hours. And it was great fun launching that. and. It, you know, it, it was it was a learning experience in terms of a new digital channel in which everything would go wrong and you would have to talk sometimes for, you know, what seemed like forever as nothing, as nothing would work and lies would go down and VTs and all that kind of stuff. So and it, that kind of gave you a sense of absolutely no fear when it came to live broadcasting. But uh, some friends of mine who I'd worked with on Newsnight, which I did before, the news channel for three years, all went over to Channel 4 News to relaunch Channel 4 News. The deputy editor of Newsnight became the editor of Channel 4 News, Jim Gray. And they said, come on over. We're relaunching Channel 4 News. It's going to be very different. We're going seven days a week. Um, and it was irresistible because, strangely, they could offer me more range in terms of what I was going to be doing than the BBC. Because, again, when I went to Channel 4 News, I initially started out as somebody doing studio presentation for a week and reporting for a week. I always liked that mixture, you know, because I felt being in the studio, especially when I was so young, I was only 28, uh, you know, it was, it was just too soon to, to stop seeing the world. There was too much to learn and too much to learn about journalism. And also studio presentation endlessly can just be quite boring, you know, if you don't see the stories for yourself. Um, but also being full-time as a reporter, you know, it's really hard work and so unpredictable and you can't plan a life. And I'd already lost one big relationship out, out of it, I think. And I thought, I don't want this to define me. Um, so I was really happy to do, have that kind of mix. 
And you really do have that mix. You you haven't looked back. You're you're still a Channel Four. And as you mentioned um, at the top of the show, uh, you also make Unreported World, which is of course the Foreign Affairs series there. So you do get a good, you know, you're out in the road some tw- at least well more than twice a year because you go out with news as well. But you do have a good balance there, Krish. It looks yes. like anyway. Yeah. No, it's always been really important to me to keep that balance of reporting and presenting. And so yes, I do. Unreported World, which is the half-hour films. And also, we travel quite a lot for Channel 4 News. I'm in the United States at the moment for Channel 4 News and have been out here for three weeks. And I've probably got another week or two to go. So I do spend quite a lot of time still on the road. And I think it's really important. There was some research done for the BBC, actually, originally, a while ago on presenters and how the audience saw presenters. And a BBC executive told me all about it. And, um, you know, it's very interesting, I think, that when viewers see presenters still working as journalists out on the road, reporting, talking to real people in real situations and covering wars and disasters, and as well as all the sort of the usual politics and, and, and what, what have you, it, it really enhances the audience's relationship with that person and, and trust in what that person is saying when they are in the studio. So I think it's really important. Well, that's really interesting. Like, so it's about perception as well. And I'm actually, do you know, when you say that, Krish, I'm thinking of a brilliant film that you made in Venezuela. And this is just one of many great films that you've made. But I, there was you such a great sense of empathy. Um, it was a film about sick children. And of course, you were a dad. Um, but I remember thinking, you know, because you are so well known for your, you know, being fierce and, and, and asking those tough questions. But there's a whole other side to you as well. And, you know, maybe that's what you're, you're referring to there. Television is such a, you know, a <laughs> two-dimensional medium in, in all sorts of ways. And people do want to pigeonhole you very quickly. Even people who work in television often really struggle with people having range and different sides to their personality. And they want you to be one thing or another. And so, yes, I think it's really important to, to show as much of yourself as possible so that you're not always just the hard-nosed guy who asks difficult questions of politicians. Um, But you're also somebody who can understand people's lives wherever they may be, in Britain or uh, around the world, and, and have empathy and understanding for the problems you're talking about. Because I think, you know, a lot of studio presenters don't really do anything else. They just go into the studio, read out loud and get paid huge amounts of money. And I think it's very easy to become very out of touch as a result. So I think, I think it's really important, not, you know, not, not just in terms of percep- perception, is important, but, and the way the audience sees you and trusts you is important, but also just for yourself to actually stay in touch with what's going on and to stay in touch with the news and with people's lives, I think it's really important to get out and still be a reporter. No, I think you've, that's really well said. And it is an industry that likes to pigeonhole. There's no doubt about that. Let me move on, Krish, to my next question, um, which is, you know, the big question of the interview. Um, is there a story or film that you've covered that had impact and that you're rather proud of? Overall, the story that I got to do in, in recent years that other people weren't getting to that I felt we did make a difference on and led the news on as well was an unreported world trip I did to Yemen. Um, and we went, it was very difficult to get into Yemen. It's still very difficult to get into Yemen to see how 
years of this war are affecting ordinary people's lives. And I went for Unreported World, and we we went to see how it was affecting ordinary people. And what we found was this terrible story of malnutrition, um, particularly amongst young children, babies. And we filmed in the hospital, and we went to refugee camps, and we followed a couple of different stories of individuals. And I mean, you know, as soon as we arrived, we, we went into this emergency room and we found one couple with a, a very young baby who was clearly very malnourished and was, it was touch and go. And they, they were trying to get some fluids into this baby. And while we were filming that, another very young child was brought in by a very anguished family and died on the, on the bed right across the, the ward from us. And it was a very, very striking moment right at the beginning of this trip where you suddenly thought, you, you know, you got the scale of what was going on here instantly. And, and so it became, you know, that became sort of a motivation, I think, for the whole trip to try and tell the story of what was going on and why. So as well as the human story, we were trying to tell a story of what was going on with um, you know, the, the bombing of key infrastructure in Yemen by a coalition of Saudi-led forces. And we got into the port in Hodeidah, and I think we were one of the first people to get in there, and maybe the first to film the targeting of cranes that were being used to unload food for Yemen. And it had crippled the port. And so I think coming back with that kind of footage, and we also managed to film missile fragments and there was a, you know, quite a lot of allegations around what missiles were being used and were they um, British or American sourced. Um, and, and, you know, we found missile fragments that suggested that they were. And so I think bringing all of that back and telling that story, I mean, what happened was we came back and instead of just waiting for Unreported World to be put together in its normal way several weeks later and go out in its documentary slot, I think within a day and a half of coming home, we were leading the news with it. And we, we put that footage on the news two nights in a row and we, we made a real fuss about it and shouted about what we'd found. And I think doing that kind of thing is, is you know, ultimately what we're all about. You know, when, when you go somewhere that other people haven't got to and bring something back that you think is important that you want to shout about to the world. It, it's very difficult, I think, with any of these stories that you do to, to work out what impact your coverage ever has. But you hope that people are watching, you know that people are watching, and you hope that you have some impact on what they think about that story. And, and with that particular story, I also took it to lots of meetings, took it to MPs, showed them the film, talked about it a lot, and, and said, look, this is going on and you don't know about it. I remember that. And that, that was actually going to be my next question. I do recall you taking it to Parliament and you had documentary evidence, I believe, that possibly British made bombs, which was, you know, that's how you have impact, though, isn't it? When you're able to show people in power what's going on and hold their feet to the fire and try to hold them to account in some way. Yes. I mean, unfortunately, the British government wouldn't do an interview about that issue with us. But we ended up talking to what we call surrogates, you know, supportive MPs who will come on and 
defend what the government are doing. But in that process, even if you can't talk to the ministers, you are still generating discussion and getting your story talked about. And that's important. So yes, I mean, you know, we, uh, and we also took it, as you say, to an all-party group and aired it with MPs and, and sparked discussion around that. And it came at the same time as there was this legal action to try and halt British arms sales to Saudi Arabia because of allegations that those arms were being used in Yemen. Exactly. And I think it's worth, you know, for our audience who are not journalists, um, I remember that time, like getting into Yemen, as you say, was a real struggle. I believe you had to get a Saudi visa and a Yemeni visa. You'd a great um, Mace Albaya, the wonderful, wonderful Iraqi producer, um, was able to get two. And, and of course, your brilliant director, Patrick Wells. Um, but but maybe explain that process as well, Krish, because our audience mightn't understand that you can't just jump on a plane and go and, and cover this story in Yemen. Well, so much of what we do is all dependent on permission to enter any place. and. That's particularly the case with Yemen. And it's obviously in the interests of those people who don't want an issue aired to the world to say no and just to deny you travel permission. At that time, Yemen was in a different territorial situation in terms of who controlled what. But what you needed to do was get clearance from the Saudi authorities to land in Yemen in advance. And it could take two weeks to do that, and you had to book a, a particular date. And, um, you know, they could just say no for whatever reason they gave. But we managed to get permission to go in. And, and then it's a question of once you get in, where can you go? Because if you get your visa, you then have to get permission to travel around the country. At that time, there was a checkpoint every couple of miles, and you used to have to show your papers as to how you know, who's given you permission to be there. And that would both be the government and the intelligence authorities there would have to approve your travel. And so every time you went anywhere, you would have to ask for permission and say, we want to go from A to B tomorrow. Is that okay? And they might say yes or no. So it's a constant process of just trying to negotiate the system, work within the rules, get to where you want to get in order to tell your story. And that was 2016, just to give context. I recall you guys in the edit back then. So that film is called Britain's Forgotten War. It's on YouTube. Uh, look for Channel 4 Unreported World. It's a great film. It's a really important film to watch. Um, so go and do that. Now, Krishnan, you're probably going to kill me for um, bringing this up. But as you've already stated, you do. You are a wonderful journalist. You've done extraordinary work over the years. But there is one interview that you're slightly famous for. Actually, not one. There's a couple which I watched um, yesterday, um, mostly for entertainment. But it was with um, either whichever one you want to talk about, Quentin Tarantino or Robert Downey Jr., where um, you were in their bad box, to say the very least. Does it bother you that that's, you know, that that interview has been viewed millions and millions and millions of times, as opposed to, you know, your really important work that you, you've done in Syria and Yemen and, and many other places? I don't know whether it bothers me. Sometimes it does, to be perfectly honest. We were only really beginning to understand the internet and what that would do to your work, I think around the time of those interviews. I mean, and there was a big difference between Quentin Tarantino and Robert Downey Jr. in that they both went viral, but the, the way they did and the speed with which they did was quite different, even in the space of, you know, a year or two or whatever was the time difference between them. 
I mean, it's funny. I, I mean, I do, you know, I do, I do hundreds of interviews uh, a year, and of course, only a, only a few of them will ever sort of go viral in that way. And people often assume that that's what you want. There's this phrase "gotcha journalism" now, which I've never really understood as a as a phrase, you know, as a sort of a criticism, because if you if you want your politicians held to account, then you should want your interviewers to ask hard questions. Um, that's not that's not gotcha. That's you know that's I'm never looking for a moment where I can say I've got you. I'm just trying to ask them the questions that people want and do your job and and do your job with celebrities it's it's different i mean and with neither of those was i looking for a particular explo- explosive moment with quentin tarantino that interview was done at a time when the premiere of his movie had had to be cancelled because of a school shooting and the vice president had called in the hollywood studio bosses to talk about violence in movies and video games. So it was completely in the news and quite predictable, I thought, as a question that he would be able to talk about it. And I wasn't actually looking to have a go at him. I was a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino films when I did the interview and I certainly wasn't looking to fall out with him. But he reacted very, very sharply to a fairly simple question about whether there was a relationship between movie violence and real violence. And it's one of those things where with these Hollywood types, they just aren't used to journalists who won't back off. So the, the kinds of journalists they normally deal with are really scared of, of their whole industry and are really scared of losing out on the next interview. So they're often quite sort of client-based. I'm so glad you said that because this is something I really wanted to ask you. I'm obviously sitting here in New York and, you know, we have various channels on to watch the news. It's so different over here. I don't think the US audience quite understand what the BBC does, what Channel 4 does, what PBS, of course, here does. But the difference in, you know, you would never have faced any pressure from bosses above, you know, that you had really, really, excuse my language, but you pissed off Quentin Tarantino. That just wasn't an issue because your job was to ask the hard questions. You did that. Um, And of course, you were going to air that interview. Whereas in potentially in other commercial outlets here, that interview would have been cut. You wouldn't, and you would have been in trouble, I'm sure. Well, I, I think there's a totally different culture. To be fair, actually, to the Tarantino you know, publicity machine, the press officer who was in the room thought it was hilarious and thought it was brilliant and had no problem and didn't try and pressure us afterwards or anything like that. And we didn't have any kind of real blowback from them. Of course, there was then reaction from other people in the industry when I was doing interviews and they would be a little bit wary, but it still didn't stop, uh, you know, anything. What happened after Robert Downey Jr. was quite different. And again, with, because of what had happened with Quentin Tarantino, when the Robert Downey Jr. interview was booked, they asked, oh, what do you want to talk about? And I got a call from a producer a few days before the interview saying, oh, what, what are you going to interview him about? And I really hadn't thoughts about it at that stage to be honest it was just a celebrity interview we were doing in a, you know we were doing in a few days time on the news as we often do and so i said well i suppose we'll ask him about you know his amazing story of having gone from prison and drugs to being hollywood's most bankable star um it's an amazing story because i knew we'd talked about it in the past and we'll talk about iron man and that's exactly what i did 
talked about Iron Man for a few minutes and then tried to move it on to a topic that I knew he'd talked about before. But he again reacted very badly. You know, what happened after that is 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 history. And he walked out. And then some studio boss came in the room and I said, Well, you know, is he coming back? And she said, you know, well, that that's obviously not going out. I said, Well, of course it's going out. You know, he's just done it. You know, so he's done it on telly. And she said, Well, who do I need to ring at Channel 4 to make sure this doesn't get broadcast? I said, you can ring the chief executive of Channel 4 for all I care. You know, they'll tell you the same thing as, I, as I'm telling you. You know, you can't stop things going out. The, the only way that that won't go out is if you get him back in here and he finishes the interview. And she said, well, that's not going to happen. And I said, well, then, you know, what happened is going to be broadcast. Well, this is, I mean, all I was going to say, Chris, was that exactly why the world needs publicly owned broadcasters. It really, really is. <laughs> well, I think, I think it is, it's just an example because, I mean, I think since then we've become a lot more savvy about the pressure that is put on broadcasters around interviews. And actually that whole attitude has infected politics and the way political interviews are managed and pressure is put on broadcasters, you know, in the same way as if, as if it's talent that you can manage rather than, you know, people in power who are being held to account. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a different attitude that we have. But obviously, I, I don't, you know, I don't really like talking about it in that way with regard to showbiz, because ultimately, there's no reason why Quentin Tarantino or Robert Downey Jr. should answer any of these questions about serious things. They're entertainers at the end of the day. And they're not really in huge positions of power. But if they offer themselves up for interview, then I think they should be open to it. So I think I think this idea that, you know, you can manage an interview and that they both had this attitude that what they were doing was an advert, a commercial for their movie, and, and that they think that they can use the media as a vehicle that is just a commercial is just wrong. You know? Yeah, well, you certainly told them otherwise. Chris, last question, um, always my favourite. Is there a crazy moment in your amazing career that you'd like to tell our audience about? A crazy moment um, working in this industry that has never made it to air? <laughs> <laughs> There are so many crazy moments. I mean, like every trip that you do is, you know, sort of crazy in some way, or you find yourself in very strange situations. You know, I mean, um, as I say, I've just just driven a thousand miles through very, very treacherous roads. I was driving out of the hurricane yesterday, driving over power lines that had been downed. You know, and we would stop and go, well, I think we can assume that those lines aren't live. <laughs> And similarly, in, in sort of the more dangerous places you go to, you know, you have these sort of, you know, everyone's got their war stories and crazy moments. But um, there are stories that don't happen, that don't make it on air in our game that, you know, often there is no control over. So I once went to Afghanistan for Unreported World and we had a what was going to be an absolutely amazing film lined up in that we were going to be the first people into Bagram prison after Bagram had been handed over from the Americans to the Afghans. And it was the most extraordinary access that had been negotiated and given by the Afghan defense minister. And I had a handwritten note from him saying, you know, give unreported world access to Bagram prison. And so we flew out and you go through hours and hours of security to get into Bagram Air Base. It takes you several hours and all sorts of checks. And we got into the general's office, who runs the place now, and he made us wait for a long time at the end of the room while he 
did his paperwork and established who was boss. And then he said, right, uh, how, you know, yes, what do you want? And we said, well, we're the team from Channel 4, Unreported World, and we've come to film. And Can we get our camera out now? Because we like to film everything as we go. And he was like, no, no, no. Um, he says, um, show me your letter. And I handed him the letter, and he looked at it for a few minutes, nodded, and said, hmm, this letter says you have permission to film in Bagram Prison according to the rules of Bagram Air Base. The rules of Bagram Air Base are there is no filming. And we were like, well, I mean, th that's a letter from um, the defence minister, and uh, isn't he, he's in charge, isn't he? He said, um, no, I, uh, I, am the, I am in charge of Bagram Air Base, and these are my rules, and my rules are there is no filming. And so that was that. So, so we'd arrived in Afghanistan, you know, with seven days ahead of us, and suddenly no story. So that, you know, that, that kind of sort of catastrophe... I, Christian, I, I know that story well because I was sitting in a restaurant, in a lovely Turkish restaurant on a Saturday night. I hadn't seen my uh, now husband, who was my boyfriend, in weeks because he lived in Belfast. And I remember getting a text from our wonderful series editor saying, find a story in Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> Everything has fallen through. So we actually left the restaurant to go home to look for stories in Afghanistan. So I can only apologize uh, for that situation. No, no, I mean, just one of those things. So those sorts of things happen all the time, you know, where sort of you think you've gone for one thing and you end up doing something else. Of course. Well, that's a brilliant one. Uh, and I can only apologize. Bloody hell, you made me feel really bad again. <laughs> Listen, Krishnan, we leave it there. You're an absolute star. Always lovely to catch up. And thanks a million for for your time. Thank you, Shona. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shona on Twitter or at Shona Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 